Section 37 of The Queen of Hearts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Queen of Hearts by Wilkie Collins. Brother Morgan's Story of Fauntleroy. Chapter 1. It was certainly a dull little dinner party. Of the four guests, two of us were men between fifty and sixty, and two of us were youths between eighteen and twenty, and we had no subjects in common. We were all intimate with our host, but were only slightly acquainted with each other. Perhaps we should have got on better if there had been some ladies among us, but the master of the house was a bachelor, and, except the parlour-maids who assisted in waiting on us at dinner, no daughter of Eve was present to brighten the dreary scene. We tried all sorts of subjects, but they dropped one after the other. The elder gentlemen seemed to be afraid of committing themselves by talking too freely within the hearing of us juniors, and we, on our side, restrained our youthful flow of spirits and youthful freedom of conversation out of deference to our host, who seemed once or twice to be feeling a little nervous about the continued propriety of our behavior in the presence of his respectable guests. To make matters worse, we had dined at a sensible hour. When the bottles made their first round at dessert, the clock on the mantelpiece only struck eight. I counted the strokes, and felt certain, from the expression of his face, that the other junior guest, who sat on one side of me at the round table, was counting them also. When we came to the final eight, we exchanged looks of despair. Two hours more of this! What on earth is to become of us? In the language of the eyes, that was exactly what we said to each other. The wine was excellent, and I think we all came separately and secretly to the same conclusion that our chance of getting through the evening was intimately connected with our resolution in getting through the bottles. As a matter of course, we talked wine. No company of Englishmen can assemble together for an evening without doing that. Every man in this country who is rich enough to pay income tax has at one time or other in his life effected a very remarkable transaction in wine. Sometimes he has made such a bargain as he never expects to make again. Sometimes he's the only man in England, not a peer of the realm, who has got a single drop of a certain famous vintage which has perished from the face of the earth. Sometimes he has purchased, with a friend, a few last left dozens from the cellar of a deceased potentate, at a price so exorbitant that he can only wag his head and decline mentioning it. And, if you ask his friend, that friend will wag his head and decline mentioning it also. Sometimes he has been at an out-of-the-way country inn, has found the sherry not drinkable, has asked if there is no other wine in the house, has been informed that there is some sourish foreign stuff that nobody ever drinks, has called for a bottle of it, has found it burgundy, such as all France cannot now produce has cunningly kept his own counsel with a widowed landlady 
and has bought the whole stock for an old song. Sometimes he knows the proprietor of a famous tavern in London, and he recommends his one or two particular friends, the next time they are passing that way, to go in and dine and give his compliments to the landlord, and ask for a bottle of the brown sherry with the light blue, as distinguished from the dark blue, seal. Thousands of people dine there every year, and think they have got the famous sherry when they get the dark blue seal, but the real wine, the famous wine, is the light blue seal, and nobody in England knows it but the landlord and his friends. In all these wine conversations, whatever variety there may be in the various experiences related, one or two great first principles is invariably assumed by each speaker in succession. Either he knows more about it than anyone else, or he has got better wine of his own even than the excellent wine he is now drinking. Men can get together sometimes without talking of women, without talking of horses, without talking of politics, but they cannot assemble to eat a meal together without talking of wine, and they cannot talk of wine without assuming to each one of themselves an absolute infallibility in connection with that single subject which they would shrink from asserting in relation to any other topic under the sun. How long the inevitable wine talk lasted on the particular social occasion of which I am now writing is more than I can undertake to say. I had heard so many other conversations of the same sort at so many other tables that my attention wandered away wearily, and I began to forget all about the dull little dinner party and the badly assorted company of guests of whom I formed one. How long I remained in this not over-courteous condition of mental oblivion is more than I can tell. But when my attention was recalled, in due course of time, to the little world around me, I found that the good wine had begun to do its good office. The stream of talk on either side of the host's chair was now beginning to flow cheerfully and continuously. The wine conversation had worn itself out, and one of the elder guests, Mr. Wendell, was occupied in telling the other guest, Mr. Trowbridge, of a small fraud which had lately been committed on him by a clerk in his employment. The first part of the story I missed altogether. The last part, which alone caught my attention, followed the career of the clerk to the dock of the old Bailey. So, as I was telling you, continued Mr. Wendell, I made up my mind to prosecute, and I did prosecute. Thoughtless people blamed me for sending the young man to prison, and said I might just as well have forgiven him, seeing that the trifling sum of money I had lost by his breach of trust was barely as much as ten pounds. Of course, personally speaking, I would much rather not have gone into court. But I considered that my duty to society in general, and to my brother merchants in particular, absolutely compelled me to prosecute for the sake of example. I acted on that principle, and I don't regret that I did so. The circumstances under which the man robbed me were particularly disgraceful. He was a hardened reprobate, sir, if ever there was one yet, and I believe in my conscience 
that he wanted nothing but the opportunity to be as great a villain as Fauntleroy himself. At the moment when Mr. Wendell personified his idea of consummate villainy by quoting the example of Fauntleroy, I saw the other middle-aged gentleman, Mr. Trowbridge, color up on a sudden and begin to fidget in his chair. "'The next time you want to produce an instance of a villain, sir,' said Mr. Trowbridge, "'I wish you could contrive to quote some other example than Fauntleroy.' Mr. Wendell, naturally enough, looked excessively astonished when he heard these words, which were very firmly and at the same time very politely addressed to him. "'May I inquire why you object to my example?' he asked. "'I object to it, sir,' said Mr. Trowbridge, "'because it makes me very uncomfortable to hear Fauntleroy called a villain.' "'Good heavens above!' exclaimed Mr. Wendell, utterly bewildered. "'Uncomfortable? You? A mercantile man like myself? You whose character stands so high everywhere?' "'You uncomfortable when you hear a man who was hanged for forgery called a villain? "'In the name of wonder, why?' "'Because,' answered Mr. Trowbridge, with perfect composure, "'Fauntleroy was a friend of mine.' "'Excuse me, my dear sir,' retorted Mr. Wendell, "'in as polished a tone of sarcasm as he could command. "'But of all the friends whom you have made "'in the course of your useful and honorable career,' I should have thought the friend you have just mentioned would have been the very last to whom you were likely to refer in respectable society, at least by name. Fauntleroy committed an unpardonable crime and died a disgraceful death, said Mr. Trowbridge. But for all that, Fauntleroy was a friend of mine, and in character I shall always acknowledge him boldly to my dying day. I have a tenderness for his memory, though he violated a sacred trust and died for it on the gallows. Don't look shocked, Mr. Wendell. I will tell you, and our other friends here, if they will let me, why I feel that tenderness which looks so strange and so discreditable in your eyes. It is rather a curious anecdote, sir, and has an interest, I think, for all observers of human nature quite apart from its connection with the unhappy man of whom we have been talking. "'You young gentlemen,' continued Mr. Trowbridge, addressing himself to us juniors, "'have heard of Fauntleroy, though he sinned and suffered and shocked all England long before your time?' We answered that we had certainly heard of him as one of the famous criminals of his day. We knew that he had been a partner in a great London banking-house, that he had not led a very virtuous life, that he had possessed himself, by forgery, of trust-monies which he was doubly bound to respect, and that he had been hanged for his offence in the year 1824, when the gallows was still set up for other crimes than murder, and when Jack Ketch was in fashion as one of the hard-working reformers of the age. "'Very good,' said Mr. Trowbridge, you both of you know quite enough of Fauntleroy to be interested in what I am going to tell you. When the bottles have been round the table, I will start with my story. The bottles went round. Claret for the degenerate youngsters, 
sport for the sterling, steady-headed, middle-aged gentleman. Mr. Trowbridge sipped his wine and meditated a little, sipped again, and started with the promised anecdote in these terms. End of section 37 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina